So uh, a couple of shameless plugs before we get started here. Number one, Pastor Ron had that thing there. We'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. Uh, if, if you see that, this is on the back. Uh, if you'd like to help with that. Uh, for everyone who helped give and make this possible, this is fantastic. You know, I've been coming to, my wife and I started coming to Faith Living Church in, uh, in April of 1989. So when I had some things and didn't have some things, when I had hair and didn't have wrinkles. Um, so that's been a long time. And so if, uh, uh, if you're a guy here, if you've been an usher here, you've, you've probably helped over the years. Uh, helped carry people in wheelchairs up the stairs. And, you know, the church was just built in the 1870s when they didn't have uh, access, access to that. So now we're going to have this over here, and uh, it's a tremendous blessing for a lot of people. Um, so if you can help with that, that'd be great. Second plug, shameless plug before we get started, is you saw the announcement for financial peace. Listen, I will just say this. If you are over 16 years old and you haven't been to financial peace, you need to come. Plain and simple, you need to come. It's worth the 90 bucks, it's worth your time, come. If you're planning on getting married and you're not married yet, come. If, you are, uh, if, you are a, uh, uh, if you're married and you have financial responsibilities, you need to come. It's, uh, it's really, my wife and I did it a couple of years ago, and uh, a, a few years ago, and it's really helped a lot. Very practical advice, some things that we do still to this day that, uh, that have helped us uh, get financially stable and then start making uh, making progress financially, because it is hard in our culture to do that, right? It really is. It's hard in our culture to do that. There's so much stuff pressing in on us, um, and it never stops, does it? Right? It's, it's, you know, it's not just enough to have, the, uh, to, you know, to have a house and a car. It's, it's then, it's, then, then our culture is always saying, well, it's not just enough to have the house and the car. It's, it's the right house and the right car. And, and once you get the right house and the right car, it's about you know, who has the greenest lawn. And, and you know, if, if it's not the greenest lawn, it's who has the best, uh, who has the best lights for Christmas. And you know, there's all this stuff always telling us that they have priorities for your money. And, uh, and so it's time to take control of it. I really... Really, if you haven't been, you need to go. I would recommend it for everyone, not just anyone, but for everyone. So, um, so here's the story of why I'm here. Um, Pastor Ron and I were having lunch uh, this week, and we were talking, and we were talking about 2016. And I was just telling him, because um, he's my friend, and we've known each other for years, and he's my pastor, and, and, uh, and so we were just talking about the, the blessings of God. And there has been some stuff going on. Um, in, 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 in my life and in my family's life that I can see the handwork of God in my life. And it's totally beyond anything that I could do, totally beyond my abilities, totally beyond anything, and we're just seeing just this wave of blessing come into our life in a lot of different ways. And we're talking about 2016 because there's been all this stuff you know, there's, you know, we're just into 2017 now, but there was all this stuff. You remember, it was like, 2016, can't get over soon enough. It was awful. You know, all this bad things going on. I'm like, I, I don't get that, you know? I mean, my mom, uh, just a little over a year ago, my mom died in, in, in 2016. So that should be a bad year, right? Well, not really, because I got to pray with my mom to receive Christ a lot of years ago. And uh, we had the blessing of her not dying suddenly, of her dying slowly from a, from a, a long-term disease, so we get to talk about being ready for, for death. Uh, and that was actually a blessing. And I know where my mom is, and one day we'll, we'll get to spend a lot of time with her, like eternity, which is really cool. Um, I, my daughter, uh, Sarah, my oldest daughter, um, got married in 2016. And it was just a tremendous thing to see a young woman, to see, to see our hopes and dreams for our oldest daughter, right, our firstborn, to see her grow up and become a woman of God and to choose right 
and when her friends and people around her were just, you know, running scared and running after guys that she chose Jesus, right? And, and to see her and then have this, this great man of God come into her life, a guy that I knew for a long time, this great man of God come into her life and, and they, you know, did things the right way and, and they were honorable and respectful for each other and, 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 and of us and of, and of his parents and, and the way that came together and I got to be part of that, it was great. So I look back and we were talking with Pastor Ron about that. I talked with him about my, my daughter, Michelle. I have five kids. We're going to talk a lot about my kids. And, uh, so he asked me to share this stuff. I said, you know, you look at my daughter, Michelle, her, her, her life has been revolutionized this year with her relationship with God. And she, got, she also then, so she's done that and she was, she's able to do some, uh, she was able to go to college, to a Christian college. She got recruited to play volleyball there, so they're paying for part of it. And uh, uh, so that's good. And uh, she's gotten to go to a Christian college and people have been able to surround her and, and challenge her in her faith and she's responding to that. She's got to, to be on the worship team there. It's just been really great to see her and to be able to talk with her about the things of God and and, and, and then my, my other daughters, two, two of the younger daughters, Joelle and Lindsay, you know, just been making great strides. My daughter, uh, my daughter Lindsay, was, was, uh, um, is growing not just this way, like Stablarics do, whoop, like this suddenly, uh, but, she's, uh, but she's growing in the grace of God, and so is Lindsay. Lindsay uh, so is Joelle. Joelle was honored with some of her musical ability at school, and uh, so you get to see her hard work pay off, and and, uh, and, and Lindsay was here when a number of the kids in the, in the youth ministry were baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was really great to see that and to see her talking to me about what she's hearing from God and, and about the Holy Spirit leading her. This is a 12-year-old girl. I'm like, wow, oh, that's really cool. And then we have our, our daughter, Caitlin. And Caitlin is just, she's just, well, she's just a joy. If you know my daughter, Caitlin, she has, uh, uh, our daughter, Caitlin, has Down syndrome and a number of complications that go with it. And she has taught us at eight years old, she has taught us that the highest thing that a parent could ever ask of their kids is not, can you get me a sticker for the college that you go to so I can put it on the back of my car and show off. That's not the highest thing that our kids could give us. The highest thing our kids could give us is just to love us and be our child. And, and that's what Caitlin has taught us, and she's great even when she's not great, because <laughs> there's a lot of times where, you know, uh, it's a challenge, but you know what, she's been great. My wife has had some, some physical challenges over the last couple of years, and just before the end of the year, I think we really found some solutions to that. And I'll tell you for myself, um, and this is what I was talking with Pastor Ron about, you know, I, I, I'm the assistant pastor here, but I have a job uh, out in, uh, in the world, right, as people will say, and they think that, you know, you've got Christianity, and then you have out there. And that's not what it's really about. It's can you be a Christian in the marketplace? And so this past year, about a little over a year ago, I got an opportunity to be in a leadership position in my company. And uh, I decided that if I was going to do that, that what my team was going to do, I kind of run some things on the East Coast, and what my team was going to do is we're going to take biblical principles and apply it to, 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 our, to our company, to my team. And I wasn't going to say anything about it up front. We were just going to see what happened. And, uh, and so what, you know what happened? God just started going, okay, 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 until I said, this is totally not, this isn't me. This is something that God's doing because he wants to show everyone something. And so our team accounted for almost 80% of the sales of the entire team across the country. Just one, yeah. Well, now here, so first of all, it was really good because it allowed us to do some things financially that we would never have thought, I mean, never in a million years thought that that would, 
And look, if you come to my house, it's, you know, I don't live in a big house, it's not, right? But just never thought in a million years that we would see that kind of thing. But I'll tell you what the most important thing was. People from our company, about 5,000 people in our company, people from our company sitting me down saying, how are you doing what you're doing? And I go, oh, you really didn't want to ask me that question, did you? <laughs> Like, no, 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 I want to know. I want to know because they're motivated by money. I'm like, good, that's a good motivation. I'm motivated by money too, right? And uh, so let me tell you what we're doing. So I'm in sales. Isn't that horrible, right? I'm in sales. But can you say to a salesperson, can you say the, th the primary thing we need to do when we go in to do a sale, the type of sales we do is it's a big software thing. The type of sales we do, we're asking a company, we're saying, this isn't just, hey, buy our software. It's, hey, we're taking the software that runs your company, and we're going to take your company and take the way that you do business and rip it out and put a new one in. Right? So kind of scary. I've actually stood up in front of people. I said, it's kind of like having a double lung heart transplant, but don't worry, you'll be fine. Right? And, right? and so people are like scared, right? So I tell my team, I said, I, I tell my team, I said, here's a practical application. They're scared, that's fear. What do we know biblically? Perfect love casts out fear. I sit down with my team and say, how can we love our prospective clients? They go, what? What are you talking about? How can, like we sit down and give them flowers, I love you? Like what does that mean? I said, no, the way that we show love is by serving them. The way we show love is by having integrity. The way that we show love is by being honest with them about the challenges they're going to face. And all of a sudden, we started selling more and more and more and more. And they're like, huh. So I'll pray with Pastor, I'll pray with Joe. They just call me Joe. I'll pray with Joe when we're out to lunch because he bows his head to pray. I'll do that. I'll listen to him because their sales are going up. And now other people are coming and saying, how are you doing that? I say, let me tell you, what we're doing is we're applying biblical principles to our sales team. They're like, yeah, tell me what you're really doing. I go, no, we're applying biblical principles to our sales team. And it is amazing to see. But the most astounding thing is that the success that our team has had is far beyond, seriously, I'm not doing fundamentally anything different than what I was doing two years ago. It's just that God has all of a sudden said, here you go. I want to give you a platform so that other people can see me through you. And it's been astounding. I will tell you something, that if you don't have that attitude towards your job, maybe it's time to have that. Right? That I could be faithful in my, in my position. I can be faithful as a student. I can be faithful as a teacher. I can be faithful as a worker. I can be faithful as a CNC operator. I can be faithful driving a truck. I can be faithful as a sales guy. That's all I am as a sales guy. So I can be faithful doing those things, and all of a sudden, God will do something in your life that allows you to have a platform to begin to speak and to show Jesus. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about, you know. He, Pastor Ron said, how, so we're sitting there over our place of Mongolian grill. And he goes, how would you like, Les, last week we're going to talk about um, unlocked treasure. And I said, you know what? What Pastor Ron has been talking about has been so important. If you haven't heard all of his stuff, I'd suggest going and getting the DVDs and sitting down, spending the time and watching it. And what he's been talking about is the key to unlocking the treasure. What I want to talk about is there's another key, but what I really want to talk about is what the treasure is. Because a lot of times we miss that, and we think that it is far more about what God can do for us than who he is in our lives. So, let's start. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, and here will be the foundation of the message. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, 
first thing we notice, and J. Vernon McGee pointed this out to me uh, through a video that he had done, that when he talks about this, he doesn't command us. He says, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. I'm not commanding you as a law of God. I'm begging you by the mercies of God. So what he's about to say is something that is voluntary. There's the first key that it is voluntary. He says, I'm begging you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your baseline reasonable service. Now, to the Middle Eastern mind for which this was written, they would have understood when he talked about the sacrifice, they were talking about an animal sacrifice in the temple. And so let me describe to you what that, what that would be like. You would be as, a, as the dad... Right at Passover, I would get a lamb, and if it was either the lamb that I raised in my own flock, or if I was a farmer, I would take and I would sell that, and I would go and I would buy a lamb. Had to be the firstborn, had to be without spot or blemish, this prime lamb, right? We'd bring the thing as the family to the temple. The priest would be over here, and he would receive it, and I'd bring the thing to the temple, and I would take my hand, and I would place it on, on the head of that lamb and transfer the sins and the responsibility of that to, my, to, to that, right? And then what would happen is the priest would take that and he would slice, slice the, uh, the, the lamb's neck and, and, and kill it. And then they would sacrifice it. And they would take some of it and they would sacrifice it on the altar to God and take some of it and they would take it and eat it. I didn't get any of that. Here's the point. As the dad, as soon as that lamb moved away from my hand, I turned around and I walked away. Because once I put on the altar, no longer belonged to me, it was a sacrifice. When I put something on the altar and I took my hands off of it, I transferred ownership of it. It no longer belonged to me. It was a sacrifice, and I walked away. Now, what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying, is saying, I'm begging you to offer your own bodies as a living sacrifice. And what I think about in my mind when I read this is I think about me, instead of taking a lamb, taking Joe and walking up and climbing onto the altar and offering myself as a living sacrifice. Now, fortunately, I like the word living, because I get to live. Um, secondly, <laughs> so any of you, this guy get to live. But the other part of it is that in some ways it might have been easier had it just been a sacrifice, because then it would be over. But a living sacrifice means on a daily basis, I'm to offer all of myself as a sacrifice. And it doesn't just mean my body. It means everything that is wrapped up in who Joe is. My dreams, my visions, my personality, my hopes, my expectations, my plans for my future, how I'm going to execute. I take all of that and I, and I dump it onto the altar and I take my hands off of it and I say, God, that's yours. And I get off of the altar after I've been sacrificed and I say, I'm a dead man walking and dead men have no rights. And so, if God, you tell me to go over there, or God, you tell me to do that, I have no rights because I sacrificed myself a long time ago. So, on a daily basis to do that. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I used to think that, that this was, and it is an awesome thing to think about. And when I say awesome, I don't mean great. I mean in the actual word, in the actual meaning of the word, awesome thing to think about doing that, to take all of me, to take my expectations for myself and my future and my plans and my 401k plan and all of that stuff and put it on the altar. My budget, my paycheck, my car, my kids, myself, 
my desires, everything, and put it on the altar. The amazing thing is that the other scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. We should do this with joy. We should do this with joy. And I will tell you something, that when we understand what this treasure is, it can be with joy. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The conformity of this world is that you are the captain of your own ship. You are the master of your destiny. You must control it. You must do it. You think that that's not true? Look at the way that you look at the way that all of us were brought up here to date. Let's just talk about that for a second. How young people, I said my daughter got married. How young, do you know my daughter didn't date? She didn't date anybody. I told her you could date your husband when you get married. Be awesome. You guys go out to dates all the time. You know where they are? They're off at Niagara Falls this weekend. Right? Said, you guys, you guys can date then, but until then, I told all of my kids, until then, you can take, I said, told my kids, I said, you only have so much time from the time you, from the time boys stop having, ew, gross, to, you know, they're like, ooh, they're kind, of, they're, kind of, they're kind of cool and they like his hair from that time. Or if you have a son, from the time the girls stop having cooties until the time you're married, somewhere around there, it's about a decade, right? Hmm, something like that. 13, 12, 13, 14, something like that until, you know, 22, 24, Average age of people getting married, 24 years old, something like that, you get about a decade. And you only have so much time. You could either spend that time becoming the young woman of God that you need to be, or you can spend that time trying to pretend that you're something that you're not, which is a wife when you're only 15, 16 years old, with some dude who doesn't even have a car, right? So you can pretend, or you can try, and so you can, but people go, but if I don't do this, right? And what do we have? We have guys who are treating girls like they're, like they're, like they're just trying on a pair of shoes, Right? And we have girls who feel like they're just a pair of shoes because they've been walked on by a bunch of guys. Right? Is it possible to have a girl who just holds herself and then when she's, when she, later when she's, oh my goodness, 20 years old. I know that sounds for young people like, I know that's an eternity for old people like, I wish I was 20. Right? So 20 years old, 21 years old, when God, and allow God to work the circumstances of bringing somebody into your life. Could that possibly happen? Sure, it can. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. We could give you a list of names of people to talk with who that's happened to. And so, and so but, but the world tells us otherwise. The world tells us you must grasp at this, right? You must get it. You must go for it. And by the way, it doesn't stop with just marriage, right? It's with our jobs. It's with our houses. It's with, you look at our credit card, right? The world says you need the couch. You need the couch. You need the couch. So instead of spending $1,000 on a couch and, you, and you're waiting and you wait with an old torn couch that, that's ripped and maybe a little embarrassing because it's got some juice stains on it, instead of waiting until you save the money for the 1000 bucks for a new one, oh, brother, you can have a brand new one, that $1,000 couch can only cost you $1,500 because you put it on plastic and pay for it over 20 years, right? That's exactly what happens. You mortgage your future to get something now. And the world is telling you that, that you have to be grasping and controlling. And God says that there's a different way of doing it. You can sacrifice all of those things and put it on the altar in exchange for a treasure. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I know a little bit about what I speak. After we saw the financial peace thing, we decided we were, even though our one car died, we would be a one car family for a long time. And for two years, we had one car. Big family, kids going all over the place. Joe has a job that requires him to travel. And we only had one car because we determined that we wouldn't go into debt for it again. So I know, I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to be bankrupt. I know what it's like to have, one point in time in my life, I had $88 in the bank. True story, I had $88 in the bank, no job, no unemployment, and no prospect for any more money. 
So when I sit, sat down with Pastor Ron and talked with him about the blessings of God, I know that it's not me that it was. I, got, I probably got myself into that position. God got me into a different position. So, I mean, just trying to be honest here. There's a way, right? So don't think that I've, I've got it all together because I absolutely don't. If I had it all together, I'd have hair. So <laughs> hair came off. This is my kid's spot right here. Yeah, so, yeah. I say to, by the grace given to me to everyone among you to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as each one is given the measure of faith. Now, here's what the treasure is. You ready? There are two, there are two parables that happen to be right back to back that describe the kingdom of heaven and describe a treasure. And they're right here found in Matthew chapter 13. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid guy finds this treasure in a field, digs a hole, buries it. He says, and he went out for joy over it and goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Huh. The guy finds this treasure in the field, digs, buries it, hid the shovel, went out and sold everything else bought the field because whatever that treasure was, it was in that field was worth more than everything he had ever accumulated his entire life. Again, he says that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a merchant, a pearl merchant, who has seen thousands of pearls, big pearls, small pearls, colored pearls, pure white pearls, pearls with defects in them, great pearls, pearls that were very expensive, but he found, he was seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found one pearl, of great price. He picks it up out of the pile and goes, oh, this is it. Went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, biblical scholars have two interpretations of these two parables, and both of them are right, by the way. The first one is this, and it's really interesting to think about, is that the treasure is you and me. And God saw us and for joy came and set, Jesus set aside his godhood, came to earth, right? Philippians came to earth, was born poor and in a manger, and rose and, 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 and found himself as a man, died even a slave's death, right? And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame. You and I are the joy that was set before him. We are the treasure. We are the pearl of great price. But I want to tell you the other part of that. You know who, what else the treasure is? The other view of that is that the treasure is God himself. Go back and listen to Pastor Ron's things, and he talks about unlocking the treasure. The treasure is not what God can do for you. The treasure here is God himself. For everything that pertains to life and godliness is wrapped up in Christ. And when we find ourselves in Christ... Well, we have everything, don't we? We have everything that we could possibly need. And by the way, a whole lot more because he wants us to have an abundant life. Jesus said, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you have, might have life and have it abundantly. He wants us to have an abundant life. But he wants us to have an abundance of blessing. He wants to overwhelm us so that we recognize that it is God himself who has given us these things. God is the treasure. When we unlock the treasure, we get God. Because once we get God, we have everything. And we have nothing that we don't need. I want to apply this to something. 
The treasure, I want you to picture this. It says the kingdom of God is like a, uh, uh, of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. The kingdom of God is like a young woman, we'll call it my daughter or, or any other young woman that I know who has done this, is like a young woman who has given her everything, including her desire for a husband. You see, that's what I mean when he talks about her, it's awe. Including her desire for a husband, she has given it to God. And she's about to dig for the treasure of God's presence. When she looks up and sees a young man who has given those same types of marital dreams over to God only to be directed to the same field. That's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be like. That's the way it's supposed to go. I tell you, I have friends. I have, I, you talk with Kevin Marsey, talk with Dan Lapila, talk with some people here who we've known in the church, where they came to me at one point and said, I've gotten up to a place in my life. Young men, when they were young men, said, I've gotten to a place in my life where, where I want to be married. I want, and they were like, Pastor Joe, I want to be married. There's no doubt about it, but I've just, I've, I've, I want to let you know I've given that to God, and then I'm, I'm finally at a place where if it's only ever me and Jesus, and I never get married, that's okay with me. And it got to a place where I heard that so many times, I'm like, he doesn't know he's about to get married, <laughs> right? He doesn't know that when he can finally say that with integrity in his heart, he's finally at a place where God can rightfully bring a woman into his life because he won't expect from her the things he should be getting from God. And talk with Dan Lapila, talk with Kevin Morris. We had, the, I, we had the same conversations with them. Talk with a bunch of people. I could give you a list of names of people. What I'm trying to get at, using marriage as the illustration, what I'm trying to get at is not the thing about marriage, but the thing about when we say we're going to sacrifice ourselves. It's not just ourselves. It's our hopes and dreams and desires, our professional aspirations, uh, our personal aspirations. It's all of that. We give it all to God. And hold nothing back because the thing that we hold back is the thing that gets left out from the presence of God. I would like to talk with you about one of my favorite people in the Bible, Joseph. I have a particular affinity to Joseph because I'm named after him. But I've learned a lot about him looking at his life. And I want to talk with you about his dreams and about himself, and maybe you and I can learn something from looking at his life. And so because I'm a geeky salesman, I made a PowerPoint slide. So, I'm actually most proud of my PowerPoint slide because I'm, I'm actually a, a visual thinker and learner, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm blessed with being a visual thinker and learner, but, I'm, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm the world's worst artist. The only thing I do worse than, than drawing is singing, and if you've ever heard me sing, then you'd be like, wow, his drawing is pretty bad too. And so, we're gonna, if we can put this up here, the, um, the PowerPoint presentation. So, I, this is good because I can actually describe things with other people's art. So, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at God's faithfulness toward Joseph, and um, that's the reason why in your, uh, in your weekly challenge, it has, it has a thing about taking about 45 minutes, it's about how long it'll take you to read it, to read 12 chapters in Genesis. Those chapters 38, then 39 through 48, and then 50 are the entirety of the record of Joseph's life uh, in, in the Bible. And really just sit down and read it for what it really is. Now, there's a lot of things that were going on. There's a lot of bad, not so great things that were going on in, uh, in Joseph's family life, and we're going to talk about that, and that's how it works. Let's put this first one up here. So you know that Joseph, that's a, a drawing of, jo of Joseph. He's the dude in the multicolored, uh, you know, Joseph's robe of multicolors, right? And he's talking to his brothers about his dream. So let me tell you what this is like. Jacob was not the smartest guy in the world. He had two wives. And so, so Jacob 
had, but Jacob loved Rachel, but he had children by Leah. And so by the time Joseph was born, all his brothers were older than him. So he was the youngest in the family, but because he was the, the child of Jacob's love, Jacob treated him like he was the oldest. The coat of many colors was a special blessing. It meant that there was a blessing coming to him. So he treated him like he was the oldest. The other guys went off to work. He stayed around the house and, you know, kind of ran things. And he's only 17 years old. This is not really good, right, for, for Joseph's character. He was probably full of himself, right? And at one point in time, uh, Jacob has sent Joseph off to check in on the guys when they were out in the field with the, with the, with the sheep. And... He came back and said, yeah, they're not really doing that much work, right? I mean, what did Joseph know? He had never done any of it. And, but he came back and gave him a bad report. And so they, 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 he, they got in trouble. See, they really weren't too happy. So here's this young kid, thinks he's all that. He's 17 years old, right? He thinks he's that when he's really nothing. And Joseph has two dreams. Those dreams were from God. First dream, he's telling his brothers here, first dream is he gets everybody together. So first of all, he gets a dream from God. And the first thing he wants to know is brag about it, right? And so he says, hey, I had this dream. And we were all out in the field, and we were gathering hay, right, in the stacks. And then suddenly, all of your stacks bowed down to mine. That's a weird dream, huh? I'll bet that went over real well with his brothers. He goes, then I had another dream that the moon and the stars bowed down to me as well. And that was his parents. And his parents were like, you think we're going to bow down to you as well? He's like, I don't know. That was my dream. Pretty cool dream, right? Well, the next thing you find out about Joseph is this next thing. is about a year later. Jacob sends Joseph off into the field to, uh, to visit his brothers and to find out what's going on. And his brothers go, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. That's what, let's kill him. Now, Reuben, his, one of his older brothers, said, listen, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him into a pit. And what, he would, what Reuben was hoping to do is throw him into a pit and later come and rescue him and bring him back. But I want to tell you something. It doesn't say it in the Bible. How many of you guys have brothers? Do you think they just said, all right, Joseph, get in the pit? Or do you think there's a little... <laughs> I think there was a lot. I think they beat the living daylights out of Joseph, took his, 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 his robe off of him, and chucked him into a pit. Now, let's just review the dream. He had a dream where he was here and they were bowing to him. And now he's been thrown headfirst into a pit that's deep enough that he can't get out of, and his brothers are looking down at him. How's the dream going now? So 18 years old, that's actually a, a drawing, uh, an ancient drawing of an Egyptian um, slave caravan. Instead of killing him, they sold him as a slave in Egypt. Basically, they, they, they sentenced him to death by work. That's what happened. That was the expectation of what would happen to a to slave in Egypt. So they sold him to, as a slave to Egypt. In Egypt, by the way, took his who took his coat and, and told his dad that he was killed by wild animals. That's how much they hated Joseph so much that they didn't even care the sorrow that it brought on his father and and uh, and their stepmom. So Joseph, they thought Joseph was dead at 18. So we all know that Joseph goes to, to Egypt. Right? And, he's, and he becomes a slave in the cap, a captain in, in the Egyptian army, the guy named Potiphar. He becomes a slave. And now I'm going to tell you the story real quick because this is how it reads. Joseph became a slave in Potiphar's house. But everything that Joseph did was blessed. 
And so Potiphar saw this and put him in charge and then ultimately put him in charge of his whole household and said, there is nothing. You run the enti- my entire household and there's nothing that I'm going to withhold from you except myself and my wife. Just us, everything else is good. Well, Potiphar and his wife obviously had some issues and it said that Joseph was, uh, was young and good looking, which is why I like Joseph, and that he was young and good looking and uh, he was humble too. And uh, and so, so Joseph was young and good-looking, and Potiphar's wife wanted to, wanted to cheat on her husband and have sex with Joseph. And so she kept after him day after day after day. Now, Joseph had integrity in his heart, and he was actually being a faithful slave. Kind of weird, but he was being a faithful slave. And eventually she grabbed a hold of him, and he ripped away from her, and she, had, was, she was left with, like, his outer garment. She accused him of rape, and Joseph got thrown into prison. Interesting side note on the Joseph got thrown into prison part, by the way, because that should have been death. If he had really raped her, that, the, the punishment for that was death. It says something about what Potiphar believed in this story, that he only put him in prison. Hmm, interesting. Anyways, he puts him in prison, and the next thing you know, Joseph is faithful in the prison, and the, prison, the person who's running the prison recognizes that everything that Joseph does is blessed, and so he ultimately puts him in in, in charge of the whole prison. Even though he's a prisoner, he puts him in charge of running the prison, and the prison's running really great. And then they, the Pharaoh takes two people, two of his officials, a, a, a baker and a cupbearer, which is a butler. Baker and butler throws him into prison with Joseph. These two guys are in prison with Joseph, and then they both have dreams. Jo- Joseph interprets their dreams. They get out the next day. The dreams come true. The one guy is killed. The other guy is spared. The guy that spares him forgets about Joseph. And then later on, Potiphar has a, or, or Pharaoh has a dream. The butler finally remembers Joseph, and, and he says, okay, there's this guy in prison, and he interpreted my dream, and it came true, and now he can interpret your dream as well. And that's how Joseph gets out of prison. That whole thing happens in one hour, including commercial breaks. <laughs> right? Put the, uh, so he's there, in, in there, and he, then he goes to prison. This is the next one. He goes to prison. I put approximately 23 years old when he gets thrown into prison. I said approximately because I divided the two events in half because, because from the time that he was sold as a slave to Potiphar until the time that the butcher and the baker, or the baker and the uh, butler show up in prison was 10 years. So he was in, if that's true, and it's really just split, split the difference, that means that he was in, he was in Potiphar's house as a slave. He, Potiphar didn't go, oh, you look like a good slave, be in charge of everything. He was a faithful slave for, for almost five years before he became number one slave and then thrown into prison. And then he's thrown into prison, and he's in prison for another five years before he becomes in charge of prison, the prison. And you get these people, go to the next one here. And so he's, by the time, the, the inter- we know that he was in, it was two years after the baker and the butler, two years after that dream interpretation. It says that they forgot about him. He was in prison for two years, the Bible says. So you do the math, and he's 30 years old when he stands before Pharaoh. Does that have anything to do, that's good for Joseph, but does that have anything to do with his two dreams? No, because his brothers think he's dead. Now he's got another life. They've changed his name. He has this dream. Here's the thing we know. He has this dream. He says, Pharaoh, there's going to be seven years of unbelievable plenty, and there's going to be seven years of absolute famine. So we're going to run it for seven years. And Pharaoh put him in charge, said, I'm going to make you second in charge of me, of everything except for me. 
and he put him in charge of the great, at the time, the greatest, largest kingdom in the world. Changed his name, puts him in charge of that. So here's what we know. Seven years of, of plenty, and then after the first year. So if you were a farmer, you would, you know, you plant your crops, you have a little bit reserve, you plant your crops, and, and then there's a crop failure, there's a drought, and there's a total crop failure. But you have a little bit in reserve, and it was the next year, but you hope that things go well, and the next year, when no rain has come, and you know that the crops won't work, that's when Jacob sends his, his, kids, to, uh, uh, his kids to Egypt to buy grain. So it's another couple of years that go by, so if you get to this next one, by the time the brothers have come to Egypt to buy grain, Joseph is 38 years old. Now, it is, I did the math, it's to walk from Jerusalem to Cairo, it's about a month, doing 20 miles a day, and if anyone's ever done any hiking, 20 miles a day is hoofing it, right? So, so it's, a, it's about a month, it's 22 days, no breaks, if you're doing 20 miles a day, take some camels and everything like that you got, got, got to do, and uh, probably about a month. So when they went down, it was a month down, then they had to do business a month back. They didn't just bring enough grain for like the weekend when they went back, right? They were bringing supplies to get their entire family, their tribe through to the next year because they thought that it would be what? It would rain. And when it didn't rain, long story, go in and take a look at it, but long story, the thing we need to know is that when it didn't rain and they sent them back, that's when Joseph was revealed to his brothers here. So go ahead to this next one. That would make him 39 years old when his brothers are bowing before him as a fulfillment of the dream that he had when he was 17. So they, finally, there's a whole, there's a whole little falcon crest thing that happens uh, in there. There's a whole little soap opera thing that happens in there. You should read about it. But once that happens and he reveals himself to his brothers, a normal person would have killed his brothers because his brothers tried to kill him. But he doesn't. Why? Because all these years his character has been developed. See that? All these years, all these years, the, the young, punky 17-year-old was beaten out of him, and in its place is a person who could forgive his brother for trying to kill him. And then he says, go, for my, go, go get my dad. Now, of course, they went, then they'd have to pack up the dad and everything. It wasn't just taking a trip. They moved their entire tribe down. And so just for birthday's sake, and I'm not sure how long that would have taken, so there's a little bit of a guess on me, so you go to this last one. When Jacob finally comes down to Egypt, Joseph is somewhere near his 40th birthday. So we'll just call it 40 because it makes the math easy, and I'm not that smart. So if you take this and you take 40 minus 17 gives me 23, right? 23 years from the time that God spoke to him and told him about his future until it actually passed. And in between, in between, his brothers tried to kill him. He was sold as a slave. He was thrown in prison and spent most of that time there. 23 years. 23 years. I've got a question for us. It comes out of that 23 years. How many dreams have you laid aside that are not even that old, that God has shown you something and you've laid it aside as that'll never happen and you've forgotten it and you've put it aside and you said that'll never happen. It's just not happening. It's been five, seven, eight, ten years that God showed me something and it's just, it's just it's not happening. I might as well forget it. And what we're saying when we do that is that we don't believe that God actually spoke to us. How many, how many people 
have stopped praying for something because it just doesn't work. I tried and it doesn't work. I prayed for my father for his salvation for 14 years, every day for 14 years. The funny thing is, because God thinks it's funny, I wasn't even the one who led him to Christ. It was my sister who had, that, who had the honor of doing that. But I prayed for my dad every day for 14 years. How many times have we stopped praying for somebody because we don't see results? How many dreams have you laid aside about your future, about your destiny, that you've put aside because you just don't see the circumstances working out? And we don't see that. And we, what we're implicitly telling God is that I don't trust you with my dreams. And we take them off the altar. And when we take them off the altar, this remains locked. Because for joy, he went and sold all that he had. We take our dreams and our plans for the future and the things that in the private that we are so amazing, we can't even believe that God would have shown us that. And here's what we don't realize, and I wrote this down to make sure I got it right. God knows you. Isn't that amazing? He knows your name. He knows you by name. He has whispered love songs into your spirit from the moment of your conception. He knows you. You think that you dreamed your own dreams? It was God. It was God lifting off the cover of your own destiny and inviting you to join him there. That's what your dreams are. That's what that vision is. God loves you. And he has demonstrated it through Jesus Christ. He loves you. But God is not playing the short game of instant gratification. He's playing the long game where your character becomes capable of handling his blessings while simultaneously remaining close to him. That's what the story of Joseph teaches us. That it wasn't about the fact that God couldn't do it. He had already done it, but he needed Joseph to come to a place where he could give that to him and have him not lord over his brothers in it, but instead be a servant to his brothers and a servant to his father and use them as a fulfillment of prophecy. You think Joseph didn't get it? You know what Joseph knew? That God had spoken to Abraham, his grandfather, and told Abraham that, that, the, that the, the, his family would go into Egypt and be slaves for 400 years. So you know the last thing that Joseph did before he died? And you read about it in, in the last chapter of Genesis. He said, when you leave, take my bones with you. And during the exodus, they took Joseph's bones with them and buried them in what is today Israel. Because he said, one day, the promises of God, the promises of God through Abraham will come true even if I'm dead. I don't have to be part of what God is doing in my life. I can be dead and buried in the ground, and God's still going to fulfill my promises. You think your prayers go unanswered? Your prayers will not go unanswered. Even if you die and haven't seen them, your prayers for your kids will not go unanswered. You think your death has anything to do with it? Talk with Joseph. He said, the fulfillment of God's promise to my grandfather will come to pass. Take my bones. And they took his bones. The problem is, the problem is, is that, is that we think too little of Jesus. We think too little of, of who's in here. I want to read something to you from the, from the book of Revelation to, to see what God is actually like. 
The Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, here's what it says. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Think about that. Who is and who was and who is to come, the constant. And if he said something, then he means it today. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And if Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, do you think that he's ruler over your parents? Do you think that he's ruler over your teacher? Do you think that he's ruler over your boss? Do you think that he's ruler over our president? Do you think that he's ruler over our governor? And if the answer to any one of those things in your mind is no, then you have the wrong God. Because he is the ruler. And he is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And if we are in him, then we are next to the ruler of the kings of the earth, and there is nothing that is impossible without him. To him who loved us, listen, to him who loved us and demonstrated his love by this, that he washed us from our own sins with his own blood. He loved us. We are not. If, if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith and trust in God, I remember my sins. It is hard for me. To think of myself as worthy. But I remember that Jesus said, I washed you from your sins with my own blood. Who are you to bring them up again? Who are you to think that you can't be in my presence without the fear of being, in, without the fear of being put to shame? I put myself in a position all the time, intellectually. I call it an intellectual faith box. What I mean is I don't feel that's true. But I say, I have a choice. I can either believe him and take him at his word or call him a liar to his face. And I really don't like lightning, so I figure I should just believe him. Even if everything in my body is saying, it's not true, Joe, because I know the person I look at in the mirror at night when I'm brushing my teeth. I know what I'm like. And God says, I don't care how you feel. I only care what's true. I have washed you from your own sins from your sins with my own blood. And he has made us, not someone to sit in the back, he has made us kings and priests. Kings and priests to, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the, uh, of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, let it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who gives your dreams, the one who fulfills your dreams, and the one who walks in the middle of it, because I am the treasure that you seek. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was, who, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That is who God is. And when we unlock that treasure, that's who we get. Now, I want to take a couple of minutes and share with you a, uh, a video that I wish was coming from somebody else because I'm a Steelers fan, and this guy played for both the Browns, and now he plays for the Ravens, and I just wish he didn't play for any of those guys. But I really, really respect him, and I really like him. His name is Benjamin Watson, and I first came across Ben Watson. I knew him as a, as a football player, uh, but didn't know really anything else about him, but I came across him from a Facebook post, and he'll record came across him from a Facebook post that went viral, and it was about the whole thing that was going down in Ferguson a couple of years ago. He wrote this Facebook post, it went viral, and then all of a sudden people started asking for interviews, and he was on a, a, a news show, and they were interviewing him about what he wrote. And, and this is what I heard. I'm just watching the news show, I'm watching, I'm like, huh, Benjamin Watson, okay, cool, I know that guy. And he says, he says our problem, he says, we do not, in America, we do not have a skin problem, we have a sin problem. And I went, Brr? Let me hear what this guy has to say. 
And since then, we've become friends. How do I know we're friends? Because, you know, he, he answered one of my tweets, so, you know, <laughs> Ben and I are <laughs> tight. So, uh, so, uh, so anyways, so, uh, so I, I started following him, have a lot of respect for him uh, as a man of God, as a Christian, and, uh, and really as a Christian brother. So he's got, he's got a, a video here, and it's going to talk a little bit about himself, a little bit about his life. Again, he, he was a star tight end, and then he went uh, to New Orleans, and then last year uh, was supposed to play for the Baltimore Ravens this year and had a season-ending in, injury in the last game of the preseason. Think about that. Last game of the preseason, tears his Achilles tendon out for the entire year, and yet God was still going to do something in him and through him. So let's take a couple of minutes and watch this. It's amazing how God has his own purposes in his own timing. And sometimes it's different than what our timing is. I always wanted to play football clearly, but I always wanted to play wide receiver. I grew a little bigger than a wide receiver, so I ended up playing tight end. But as a tight end, you're an offensive player. You want to score touchdowns. You want to be known for, you know, the, the, the footballs, the passes you catch. And going through college, going through the NFL, I mean, we're talking about 20 years worth of work to be known as one of the great at your position. That's, that's what every player wants. It was tough for me because as an athlete, you want your name in lights. You know, you want your name to be the one they call on Sunday, scoring the winning touchdown. You want to read about yourself in the paper. And then it's funny how, as hard as that was to be in that position, my wife kept telling me, Benjamin, you be faithful in what God has given you. God had me in that position at that place in New Orleans at that time. It wasn't an accident. And you know, I'm going to serve him right now, even though my football career isn't really going how I want it to go. He has me in this position, maybe for things outside of football. Maybe there's guys that are going to get saved because I'm in this locker room and they never heard the gospel. So I, I went about it for two years doing that. And then the funny thing is, in 2014, I write this blog post about Ferguson and about what happened, um, about my anger and my frustration, about seeing these things between police officers and, and men and black men on TV. And, and there was so much going on that, that summer. And I put it out there and it goes viral. spent 20 years of my life trying to play football and I'm known for a tackle on really defense because it was an interception and a Facebook post. And I'm like, guys got jokes, but that's how he does. He can elevate your name uh, however he wants to do it, or he can have nobody hear about you however he wants to do it. And you realize that it's not because of anything I did, it's because he wanted to elevate me at this time. Um, he wanted people to know something that I wrote or something that I did at this time. And it's amazing his timing because if it would have happened any other way, my pride might have kicked in and I might have thought it was all about me. All about, all about because I was doing so well on the field is why people know, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was him. And he just chose to do it at that time. And the whole thing turns into a book. 
under our skin, getting real about race, getting free from the fear of the frustrations that divide us. The Facebook post grows legs, and next thing I know, a publisher is calling me about wanting to do a book based on the Facebook post. So the book really follows the sequence of the Facebook post, follows my emotions about being angry, about being sad, about being sympathetic, about being introspective, about being um, hopeless and hopeful, and ultimately being encouraged because the gospel gives all mankind hope. When we look at all these that's going on in our country and our world, the gospel is the equalizer that promotes unity. And so that's where our encouragement can really lie. Our job is to be ambassadors for Christ, wherever you are, wherever you talk to. We all have a sphere of influence. We never know what God is going to use with our obedience. And if nobody hears about what you do, your job is to still be obedient to what he has for you to do. The time off from football that Benjamin Watson has had this year because of the season-ending injury has been time that the book has come out. Uh, he's been all over the news, and if you've watched, you can see he's been on the news. And the last time you may have seen Benjamin Watson was as one of the main speakers at the March for Life in front of several hundred thousand people in Washington, D.C. Not because he's a football player, but because he wrote a blog post and God had used him and shaped his character at that point to be able to use him. I have tremendous respect uh, for him as a, uh, as, as a Christian and, a, and as a man and as a dad. Um, but I want to talk with you about what we learn from this video. I saw that he, he saw it as, as, as himself as pottery. Listen to this, Isaiah 64. You get two more scriptures and we'll close. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hands. And so the primary question is, I sat with Pastor on at lunch and he said, what is it? What is it that you think that, that has been the key for you? What is it? And it's simply an answer to this question. I'll pose it to you as well. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust God when it doesn't make sense? Do you trust God when you don't have the answer? Do you trust God when he's silent? When I told you that we've had, we've had a tremendous year this last year, and there's just been just seen blessing after blessing after blessing. I can tell you that there's been challenges and all kinds of other things as well. There's been, there's been you know, my, like I said, my mom died. There's, some other things have happened in this year. There's been times where we've been bankrupt. And the question is this, do I trust him? And they've come to a place in my life where I come down to only two things, where I can say this to God. I may not know what you're doing, I may not understand what, what, what you're up to, but I do know these two things. One, you love me, and so whatever you're doing is for your glory and ultimately my good, because if I'm close to you, being close to your glory is for my good. And two, I can trust you, because you are good. And so like that piece of pottery, he says that we are the clay. That clay can sit in the ground as just a lump of clay underneath the grass, and then it's discovered, and somebody takes it, and they cut it out, and you're like, ooh, he's going to now take me, and he's going to use me, right? And it feels great to have the master's hand on your life. And you know the first thing you do with a piece of clay? You pound the snot out of it. 
and you beat it, and you beat it, and you beat it. And you know why you're beating it, and rolling it, kneading it? You're trying to get little pieces of rock out. You're trying to get inclusions out, things that will only harm it later. You're trying to, I was talking with a friend of mine, I did this in my eighth grade. I blew up my eighth grade pottery uh, in the kiln because there was an air bubble in it, right? Push, and it was, it was horrible. It was a light, nice little mushroom thing. And uh, boom, popped out of her. Never saw it. So, we, so you got this whole thing, and, and now you just beat you. That's like Joseph, right? He takes him, and they beat him, and they sell him as a slave. And you're like, what in the world is going on? I thought I was serving God, and this seems harder than it was when I wasn't serving God. And you're right, because now God is actively doing this in your life and saying, do you trust me to take things that you think are good out of your life and put maybe other things in your life and pour over the water of the word of God and continue to push on you? And you say yes, God. And when you say yes, then he takes you over here onto the wheel, and, he starts to, and you feel his hands on your life, and it is awesome. And he's molding you and he's shaping you like, what will I become? I'm not sure, but this is great because God's working in my life. And suddenly you're there and you're the shape you're going to be. You're, in my case, an ashtray, right? Or a bowl, something small and insignificant, right? Whatever it is that you can make in pottery, people make great things. But maybe you're whatever you're going to be, right? And here you are, this piece of pottery and you're what you're going to be. You go, this is awesome. Now I'm going to be used by God. And he cuts you off the potter's wheel, picks you up in his hands, walks you over to a shelf where he puts you there and turns around and goes to work on someone else. And you're sitting there going, I see him working in other people's life and nothing seems to be happening to me except I'm getting dusty and dry. We don't understand that if you put a piece of wet clay, wet pottery into the kiln to do it, you'll destroy it. And it's for our good that we stand dusty and dry, and maybe it even feels like God's turned his back on us a little bit and is doing something else, and we're just sitting over here, like Joseph just sat in the prison. I have gifts, I have talents, I have something to offer, and I don't have any opportunity, and I just feel like I'm drying out. And then one day, God comes over, and he picks you off the shelf, and you're like, yes, yes, this is awesome. He's now going to, he's not using me, he's sticking me in the fire. <laughs> and he puts you in the fire, and you're like, come on. Come on. What in the world is going on? It feels like, you know, and it's just everything's burning up around you, and it's not comfortable, and it's not pleasant, but we don't realize it is only then when you come out that you're useful. And often by the time we're useful, we're dry and glazed. <laughs> and it has less to do about us and more to do about God, doesn't it? Do we trust him? to allow him to take us through the process to mold and shape character in our lives so that we can be proper containers of the blessings of God while simultaneously remaining close to the maker. We need to understand that God loves us. Listen to this, and this will close on this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? We are not made to be a doormat in the kingdom of God. We are made to be a display piece. So when God goes, oh, 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 oh. You want, to see, you want to see what riches and grace looks like? You want to see what it looks like? Let me show you Joe's life. Wow, cool. 
Let me show you this piece of, right? We don't, doormats, we don't have them hanging up. We have like the hand-blown glass or the pottery. I have lots of pottery in my house because I love it, right? Hand-blown glass, pottery, something like that. Look at this, look at this. Let me show you this. Let me tell you this story behind this. Let me tell you, come to my house. I've got some hand-carved horse heads out of black walnut. I can tell you the story behind them. Let me show you this. Let me take this off the shelf and, sh and tell you a story. God wants to tell everyone in the universe your, your story of him working in your life. You are saved to be a display piece by God, a, dis a display of his grace and mercy across endless universe. For by grace have you been saved, not through faith, and in that not of yourself, is it a gift of God, not works, so that no one can boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, which God prepared beforehand, before our birth, that we should walk in them. I'm serious when I say that God was singing love songs to you in the womb. That God has had a plan for your life. And it's a plan of good and not evil. And if we will hold close to him, if we will hold close to him, even when we don't get what he's doing right now, even when we don't get where we're at right now, even if it feels like we're enslaved or we're a prisoner, God is still at work. And he wants to use us, and he wants to bless us. And he wants to use us as a display of his riches, not because we're great, not because of anything that we have done, but because of how great he is. So here's my challenge. Maybe you don't know him, and you need to. Maybe you've known him, and I just want you to just... <coughs> Think for a second, have I thrown away a dream that God has given me? Have I thrown away a vision and thrown it away and cast it into a pile of unbelief because I don't believe that God could ever use me or I don't believe that God was listening or I've convinced myself because it's been so hard, I've convinced myself that it must not have been true or that I don't deserve it. I want you to pick that thing back up again. And ask yourself, did God really speak to you? Did God really show it to you? Did it, did it generate from my own self? Or was this something that God put in my heart? And if he did, hold on to that and pick it up again and say, you know what? I don't understand it, God, but I know these two things. I know you love me, and I know that I can trust you. Let's pray. God, you are good, and therefore we can trust you. God, you love us, and therefore we can trust you. And I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, I don't even know everyone's stories, but I know that everyone has a story, that you would just replay in our minds what you've spoken to our hearts maybe a long, long time ago, maybe 15, 18, 20, 25 years ago, that you, you've, you've, you've spoken to our hearts, and now, Lord, show us that that you are the treasure in our life, that if we, would, if we would simply take all of us and sacrifice it on the altar to you, that, they, that what we get in exchange is you. Lord, draw us to yourself. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, release inside of us that vision again to believe and to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now listen, a couple of things. If you have...
Anything that we can pray for you about, people will be right here. We'd love to pray for you. I would like to say something specifically, and uh, that if, if you have something that God's shown you, and that you're like, hey, I need someone to pray for me about a dream or a vision, or something that God's placed in my heart and spoken to me about that I let go, and I want to pick it back up again, I would certainly love to pray with you about it. Last, two th last thing is this. Just remember, uh, we really do need some people out here to help with the elevator and to help in the parking lot. And so there's these, uh, these, these sign-up things back at the uh, Connections uh, desk. So the rest of you guys, God bless you.